Hi there, this is Katie Stiegel, and you're listening to Step Off Radio Production. Internet, what's good? You're turning into another episode of Step Off Radio. I am your host, Rob Camacho, and Jose and I are back with our first episode of 2019. A lot has happened in the world since our last episode back in December. Uh, the country recently just got out of what was declared the longest government shutdown in U.S. history, lasting a total of 35 days from December 22nd all the way to January 25th. It was the second federal government shutdown involving furloughs during the presidency of Donald Trump. And uh, now, of course, we're not out of the woods quite yet. Current funding, which ended the shutdown, expires on February 15th. So we very well might find ourselves in the exact same position if Donald Trump once again attempts to hold the government hostage in exchange for funding of his ridiculous border wall. Uh, Likewise, it's also been announced several days ago that the Pentagon has plans to to deploy an additional 3,500 troops along the U.S. border. Um, That's in addition to the several thousand troops already deployed at the border who have been there since about the end of November. Those incoming troops are expected to be deployed at the border for another 90 days at least. Now, I bring this up because this militarization of our border region here in San Diego ties in with this whole air of anti-immigrant or more specifically anti-Hispanic, anti-Mexican rhetoric, which has continually grown amongst white supremacist, white nationalist groups, uh, far right-wing extremists, and of course your unaffiliated common guard of variety racists and bigots. And I have to call this anti-Hispanic uh, or anti-Mexican because uh, that's really what it is. The, there isn't a demonization of immigrants from Canada, Russia, uh, Czechoslovakia, or other nations where people commonly originate from and remain in the U.S. after their visas have expired. This is a phenomenon that is, by and large, um, hatred and patrol uh, reserved for Mexican immigrants and refugees coming from other Latin American countries. Now, as some of you may or may not know, this past weekend, uh, February 3rd to be exact, marked the one-year anniversary since white nationalists and other right-wing extremists descend on Chicano Park in an attempt to harass and intimidate the community in what has been called uh, Patriot Picnic 2.0. Now, for those of you who are not from San Diego or familiar with the history of the park, I'm going to try my best to cram a lot of history and backstory into about five minutes in an attempt to bring you up to speed about the history of the park and the significance of the hate rally that was allowed to take place in the park, so please bear with me. Uh, Chicano Park is located in the working-class community of Barrio Logan, directly under the Coronado Bridge. It's historically been a Chicano, Mexican-American neighborhood southeast of downtown San Diego, and for decades it's been the cultural epicenter for the Chicano community here locally. The park itself was founded in 1970 when residents occupied the space, which is now the park, after the city went back on a promise to build a public park and attempted to build a California Highway Patrol station there instead. Now, keep in mind, Barrio Logan is a community that historically has been mistreated and underserved by the city of San Diego. In the 1950s, the neighborhood was rezoned as mixed residential industrial, and thus the junkyards and industrial repair shops that moved into the barrio created air pollution, noise pollution, and other numerous aesthetic conditions that were completely unsuitable and, quite frankly, would have never been tolerated in more affluent residential areas in the county. 
uh, through eminent domain. The barrio was cleaved in two by the Interstate 5 and was further hacked and divided by the elevated on-ramps of the Coronado Bridge in the 1960s, which only fueled the resentment as people were forced from their homes and saw their community destroyed without any input from the displaced residents or anyone else in the community which ultimately resulted in the loss of 5,000 homes and businesses. So by the time the city went back on its word to build the park, people had had it and took it upon themselves to occupy the space until the city ultimately relented and agreed that the park would be built there instead of as originally promised. Today, nearly 50 years later, on top of being the largest collection of outdoor murals in the country, Chicano Park has received official recognition as a National Historic Landmark. Every year, the Chicano Park Steering Committee holds Chicano Park Day, a celebration of the park's founding, and is held the weekend closest to April 22nd, the first day of the original occupation. Likewise, the park is used for a wider range of community events. It's utilized by an array of community organizations and clubs, as well as also serving as a regular ordinary public park. Uh, Today, Chicano Park is celebrated not only by local residents, but Chicanos across the country as a testament to self-determination and a monument to reclaiming land by the people. However, in recent years, a small vocal group of bigots and racists have attempted to warp and misconstrue the public perception around the park's murals, which feature depictions of Mexica folklore, uh, Mexican history, contemporary Chicano civil rights battles, as well as various historical figures from both Mexico and all across Latin America. This small group of individuals have attempted to paint the park as unpatriotic, un-American, anti-white, and just about every other ridiculous, slanderous accusation imaginable because the park does not praise and worship the legacy of straight white male domination, nor does it celebrate the genocide of colonialization of this country or the theft of the American Southwest, which many monuments in this country fetishize. The so-called rally or Patriot Picnic 2.0 was organized by a group who called themselves the Bordertown Patriots. While not an official organizer of the hate rally, the event was heavily promoted and attended by Roger Ogden. Ogden is a local San Diego resident who operates the website Patriot Fire blog, and he's used this to extensively document his history of animosity towards Chicanos, Muslims, and other largely minority communities in the region which he believes are contributing to the decline of U.S. society. Ogden was the organizer of the first Patriot Picnic event back in September 2017, which is widely believed to be facilitated as an attempt to scat out and case the park's murals and other featured art as revenge for the then-recent removal of a Confederate monument and an overall attempt to turn the park's murals into a toxic issue. Similar to much of the company around him that day in Chicano Park, Ogden can at best be described as a right-wing provocateur whose main aim is baiting people from the communities he harasses in the violent or compromising behavior and caption it on video for his website, which he then shares to his followers in an attempt to gain sympathy from the far right. In line with that goal, the Patriot Picnic 2.0 event drew a small conglomerate of local right-wing groups, but was largely made up of a loose set of -of out-of-towners from neighboring cities and regions, with some coming as far as Northern California, Arizona, Portland, Oregon, and even Washington State in an attempt to boost the event's low turnout numbers, which were said to hover somewhere in about the area of 50 people. Uh, Much like the first protest back in September of 2017, this second round of demonstrating was once again in protest of the park's stored murals, in addition to the group's newest faux grievance of the park's flying of the flag of Aslan. 
In fact, one of the stated goals of the group was to raise the U.S. flag in the park, even though it was already widely known by the community and those who actually frequent the park regularly that the U.S. flag is already flown next to a Chicano Veterans Memorial, which ironically sat right next to the very same space the Bordertown Patriots had decided to occupy in the park. Now, these people received a full police escort in and out of the park from the San Diego PD in full riot gear so they could hold a hate rally, toss racial slurs, as well as threaten and antagonize a mostly black and brown community. In a peak display of white privilege, they got to carry weapons and invade the community of Barrio Logan for the sole purpose to harass and antagonize a majority Mexican-American community. In the end, while no violence whatsoever took place inside the park as a result of the protest, a black man by the name of Frederick Jefferson, unrelated to the protest, was brutalized and arrested after defending himself from an assault by the San Diego PD, who mistook him for a uh, park protector. This confusion was quickly spun by the San Diego PD and local media in an attempt to paint park protectors and the neighborhood at large as violent. Frederick Jefferson was assaulted by a racist cop, Matthew Ruggiero, and in the end was convicted of assault on an officer and sentenced to seven years in prison. He ultimately ended up committing suicide in custody shortly after being sentenced. All of this happened because in the current atmosphere of this country, racist, bigots, and white supremacists feel emboldened and protected by the state to threaten and antagonize communities of color. Part of a disturbing growing trend that has progressively become more and more common as white supremacists, ultra-nationalists, and right-wing extremists progressively become more and more emboldened in an era where violence from the far right has increasingly become more prominent and permissible on a scale not seen in over a generation under the shadow of a Trump administration. While the local media failed Frederick Jefferson with news coverage sounding more like stylized police reports parroting police narratives, as well as failing Barrio Logan, painting the community as angry and dangerous while handling white nationalists with velvet gloves, serving up soft coverage, and even giving Roger Ogden free publicity in a glowing op-ed from the Union Tribune, one media outlet by far had the most principled, accurate, and most importantly truthful reporting of any in the region. That outlet is none other than the Southwestern College Sun, the student newspaper of Southwestern College. The Southwestern College Sun has by far had the most accurate and critical analysis of the Chicano Park protest out of any media outlet here in San Diego, with not one media outlet in the entire city taking the same amount in time and dedication to accurately report the details of that day. Of course, being a team effort, with dozens of members of the Sun putting countless hours into the reporting, much of that amazing coverage came from the dedicated work of Katie Stiegel an award-winning student journalist who has amassed various praise and accolades stemming from her tireless coverage of the Chicano Park protest and subsequent trial of Frederick Jefferson. We were fortunate enough to sit down with Katie as she recounted her experiences first covering the story nearly a year ago. It is a story of dedication and perseverance from student journalists, police brutality and intimidation from an embittered, troubled police department, as well as indifference and apathy from a jaded and cynical local news media culture, which all accumulates in the one amazing story chronicling one student newspaper's quest to uncover the truth. With that said, Internet's Step Off Radio is proud to present our interview with Katie Stiegel of the Southwestern College Sun. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Uh, please, for those that don't know, uh, please introduce yourself to our audience. Well, I'm Katie Stiegel. Um, I am a college student with Southwestern. Uh, I'm a journalism major. 
I moved down here from Big Bear about like five or six years ago, and ever since then I've just been trying to get through college and eventually become a journalist. Okay. Now, uh, what initially drew you to uh, journalism, Katie? Um, what was like the catalyst that made you not only want to study, but ultimately really make an entire career out of it? Okay. So I had these dreams as a kid of being a writer, and I wanted to be the next big novelist, And but I, I viewed that as like this unobtainable dream, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'll be a psychology major, and I was super into uh, deviant psychology, and that's a whole thing, but... Um, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try the writing thing, but if I do, I'm going to need to sign up for a writing for publication class. So I signed up for this class, and I walk into, uh, it was like a summer course, I think, and there's this teacher there, and he he looks like the absolute epitome of college professors, and he has, like, the wild, crazy hair, the button-down shirt tucked in. He has, mm-hmm. like, a briefcase and a tweed jacket, the whole, the whole deal. And he... Um, he just starts talking about journalism, and I was like, okay, you know, it's, that sounds cool. And then he starts talking about uh, what Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein did with Watergate, mm-hmm. and everything just, this the first lecture just, like, changed my life. And um, he, I was asking questions, I was sitting at the front of the class, I was taking notes like a crazy person, I was just, I was completely enamored. And um, he, uh, <laughs> he, it after the first day, he was like, you're brilliant, sign up for the class, or sign up for um, the newspaper production. And I was like, you haven't even seen my writing, dude. How do you, you don't know that I'm smart. And he, uh, his name's Max Branscombe. He's the advisor, the college advisor for The Sun. And he came in, he gave me a tour of the newsroom, and I still just saw it as like this unobtainable idea. But it was during the primaries of 2016. And I went up to him one day, and I was like, oh, you know, people in your paper should write a story about what would happen if Trump was elected. And um, he was like, great, write it. And I was like, ha, no, no, um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not a journalist, no, no. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, just go, um, go talk to our Viewpoints editor, it'll be a great idea, do it. So I wrote this piece, and it was back in, like, April of 2016, and um, everyone's like, no, he's a bad joke. He's not going to win. And I was like, but... Do you remember what it was called? Uh, I think the headline was, um, Trump Trump may be a bad joke, but he's winning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was... It, now that I look back on it, totally cringeworthy piece. Like, really bad. Um, a little more liberal than I would like to ever come across. <laughs> I've grown. I've learned. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um... Still, I, I still have the Trump is bad mentality, luckily. Um, yeah. And uh, I joined the paper after that, and it just it changed everything for me. Yeah, it kind of brings us like nicely to our <laughs> next question, which is like, obviously, um, you you brought up that you're the writer editor for the Southwestern Sun, the school paper here in the South Bay in San Diego, right? Uh, so, how did it you know feel when you first started writing for the Sun, like as a journalist, making that transition out from like maybe you've written in the past, but but taking it to the next level of like of being the journalist and specifically writing for a paper that has like a, a reputation like the Sun? Okay, so you have imposter syndrome the moment you start, right? Like you're you're surrounded by people who. There's a lot of the, some of them are award-winning journalists already, and you, they're your age, but they're already just like miles ahead of you. 
and you're looking at them and they're normal people, like they're just normal college students too, but um, you know, everyone in that newsroom, no matter what kind of generation comes in and out, everyone is just incredibly driven and motivated and we all it's it's like as soon as you step in through the door there, you know that this is something different than your average college newspaper. But when you see your when you see your byline printed for the first time, your bylines when you're um, like an article you've written, um, you see your byline for the first time, and it's it's such a cool feeling. I don't know how to describe it because you're like, oh hey, that's me. Like I'm a printed writer in a paper that has like a really high reputation. And um, I remember I took this home to my. They're not gonna listen to this anyways. I took this home to my uncle and um, I showed him. And I was really happy because I was like, wow, like it was an opinion piece. But I was like, wow, like, look, I showed all the bad effects that Trump would have on the border in this article and blah, blah, blah. And I then found out that my family were insane Trump supporters. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, that's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and from then on, it just. Um, shoot. No, I was like, as I can empathize with what you were saying, it's like um, we've all written and had our stuff oh, yeah. show up on stuff. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, it's nice. Absolutely. Like, it feels good. And, um, you know, like, and that's obviously, I don't know if you thought about that being your career, pursuing mm-hmm. it before you joined The Sun, but obviously, is that something now that you're feeling like you want to pursue as your career, like being a, a, a professional journalist or writer? Oh, absolutely. Um, I had always seen it as a pipe dream in the beginning, right? I never mm-hmm. knew that I could get published. Mm-hmm. And even then, when I first started, I would only do opinion writing because I was too afraid to do news. And I was like, no, like, that's too hard. It's too scary. I'll just stick to the opinion stuff. And um, my advisor, Max, he he has this way of just like one thousand percent believing in students before years before they believe in themselves. And um, I would love to think that I was a unique case with that. But like, I'm not. He. He just, he takes students and he gives them a future when, you know, a lot of us had no future to start out with. And um, I remember I was, look, we have, when you walk into our newsroom, there's awards from, there's hundreds of awards on our wall um, from the 1990s up to uh, 2018. (laughs) And uh, I remember looking at this one plaque we have on the wall and it was reporter of the year. And um, there's a few names from people on the sun from it. And I, it was before I even started news writing, and I was like, oh, that'd be cool to be on that plaque one day. And Max was like, you will be. And I kind of laughed, and I was like, Max, I don't even write news. Like, that's not, that's not happening. <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, it will. I think it will. Just wait. And then two years later, I ended up getting my name on the plaque. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's just... It's an incredible feeling, um, and I once I started actually writing news, I never turned back. I don't. I've only written a few opinion pieces since, but writing news and having your your name on the front the ah, sorry the front page of your paper, <laughs> and knowing that like people actually give a shit about your work and that you're making a difference, it that's the biggest part though is the making the difference. And because sometimes you think like, oh, it's just who's actually reading this? What good is it actually doing? And then sometimes you actually get reminded of like, oh, hey, (laughs) people are reading this and it is making 
sometimes making a difference, you know, and if not, like, at least we're trying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, with that said, like, you are an award-winning journalist. Like, you, <laughs> I would say that you're on top of your stuff. Now, for people that aren't made familiar, uh, there's a difference between, like you said, writing the news and doing uh, opinion pieces. Mm-hmm. Now, that line gets blurred a lot these days, especially with social media, uh, people doing op-eds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there, But there is clearly a difference, though. So, can you kind of, like, break the down, like, what's What's the difference going into, like, doing, like, an opinion piece as opposed to doing, like, hardcore journalism? So, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Um, so the thing with opinion pieces is, and I'm speaking spe- uh, specifically with credible news sources here. I'm not talking about, like, Breitbart or whatever that shit is. Um, with credible news sources, they act like, oh, if it's an opinion piece, that means there's just no basis in fact at all. But... You know, if you have solid editors, you still have to get, you still have to have an accurate piece. You still have to have the facts, the the statistics, the data to back up everything you're saying. It's not just like, oh, you know, it's my opinion that the sky is purple. Let's print it. Mm -hmm. There has to be legitimate evidence and reason to print an opinion article. Yeah. and with, you know, with news and stuff, I mean, obviously the the foundation there with the facts and the statistics and everything, the data, like that's all the same. The only difference is that there's an argument for persuasion with the with the opinion pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, one, one of your guys' um, biggest stories of the uh, past year and a half, I think, that you guys have covered at the co- Southwestern College Sun have been the uh, quote-unquote Patriot Picnic Um yeah. Rather. Now, essentially, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, essentially, for everyone that's unaware, like um, these Patriot Picnic things, they've been essentially hate rallies. They've, several of them were uh, held in Chicano Park last year, where several dozen white supremacists and far right wing extremists occupied Chicano Park in retaliation for um, a previous smaller occupation that was thwarted in 2017. Um, the Southwestern College Sun was one of many news organizations that covered um, the rally last year. There in the park. Uh, while leading up to this occupation, many people knew that this would be a big story in the city. Um, did you guys have any idea or even a feeling that the story would end up becoming as big as it actually did for you guys? Oh, no. Um, absolutely not. We, um, so the very first one back in, um, on September 3rd, there was only myself and one other photo um, photographer covering it that day. And it was, you know, we only knew about it a couple days in advance. The original photographer who was on the assignment dropped and so a girl who is now one of my closest friends, um, I didn't know her that well at the time, though. Uh, she was just the photographer who was kind of pushed in at the last minute. And they're like, hey, go with Katie on this assignment. <laughs> and, um, so we go to Chicano Park super early that morning. And this is, again, back to the first one. But um, that was like just from, you know, I mean, I'm a college reporter, obviously. So I hadn't experienced a lot of like on the streets stuff at that point. Um and because I did more, like, I was always more, like, into the investigative, like, data-driven stories. So I didn't do, um, I didn't cover a lot of protests at this point. And, but I was a news editor at the time, and so I was like, okay, like, I'll do it. This sounds amazing. <laughs> and um, so we go, and it was the first one. And I remember um, Victoria, who was the photographer at the time, um, Victoria and I, we were, we pushed our way towards the front. We were right in between um, the Brown Berets and the police. And I remember the way that the cops were looking at some of the people at the Brown Berets and the way that this one cop was holding his um, his baton. And I don't remember the words, but I remember he was antagonizing this older woman. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Like, she's clearly, like, in her 70s. Yeah. Leave her alone. <laughs> um, but so we'd gone to the first one. 
And we're like, okay, we knew the second one was going to be bigger. Um, and we knew that there was more organization involved. We knew that um, certain organizations were running security. And um, we're like, okay, this is going to be more organized. We also knew that they were going to be bringing in more white nationalists. So we actually brought an entire team that day. We had myself, Victoria, who was the original photographer. Um, we had um, our advisor, Max. We had our editor-in-chief at the time, Alyssa. Um, we had Doc, who um, is our data guy. He does a bunch of brilliant science stuff. We don't understand most of what he does. <laughs> uh, and we had a handful of photographers. And um, we got there at like 7 a.m. that day. And um, I remember one of my... Um, one of our photographers, Brittany, she comes up to me that day and she's like, hey, Katie, I saw I, there's this picture here and they're loading up um, shotguns up on the bridge. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, they're they're um, like, look at the pictures. So I'm looking through all the pictures. They're unloading cases of rifles. And I'm like, oh, no, this is bad. <laughs> uh, people need to know about this. <laughs> um, Shoot, maybe, can you pause this for one second? Oh, <laughs> or, yeah. or I don't know, sorry. <laughs> or just like not. My photographer, uh, my photographer Brittany, she was showing me the photos and stuff of the um, the cops unloading these boxes of large rifles on the, on the Coronado Bridge. And I'm like, okay, I clearly have to call the police department to get a quote about this. Like, I need to know what's going on. And I just want some clarification. I don't know a lot about guns. All I saw was big-ass guns on the bridge pointed at Chicano Park specifically. And so I call, and um, Lieutenant Scott Wall answers. <laughs> and um, we start arguing, and I was, I was being professional, as I was taught to. <laughs> uh, I can't say the same for him. He started screaming at me. He was calling me a liar. Um, he said that he'd never heard of anything like this happening. I was like, sir, I'm telling you, like, I'm looking at the pictures right now. And he was asking if there was orange tags on them because something about um, them being the less than lethal. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was like, no, there's no, there's no orange tags on these. Like, there's guns, boxes of guns specifically pointed at Chicano Park right now. What is your comment on this? And he just kept calling me a liar. <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever, dude. <laughs> um, so I told him, thank you. I'll be in touch. Have a nice day. <laughs> and. Um, so that, again, that was still early in the morning. That wasn't even, you know, before things started popping off. <laughs> and, um, you know, everything inside the park was so peaceful. And it was just, you know, I mean, for those that were there, it was, it was a celebration of the park. You know, if you ignored some of the disgusting people that were outside of the park. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, um, I remember... You know, they weren't letting, obviously, they weren't letting people cross over into the little chicken cage, the chicken cage that they kept the white nationalists in. <laughs> um, but I remember seeing two of my photographers who were women of color going over there, and I'm panicking. I go into full mom mode, and I push to the front of the line on Chicano Park side, and everyone's trying to get people to back up. And I, I don't even remember what I was screaming. I just remember that I was, like, delirious and terrified of them being over there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm not moving from this spot until I see that they're okay, and I'm panicking. And Because, um, you know, I just you don't want to send two teenage women of color over into a pit of white nationalists, you know? Yeah. And... Um, I remember finally, like, I was like, okay, well, if they're over there, I can get over there. So I finally just pushed my way through the crowd and showed my press badge and stuff. And um, I remember uh, I was like, okay, I have to at least talk to these people. 
And so I was talking to them, and I was just, I, it took everything to not just, like, start arguing and telling these people off, because they're, they're just so wrong, you know? Well, of course, And yeah. it's, it's not even, I mean, obviously, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's all good. Yeah. But ultimately, you wrote, you, you, you know, an article gets written, right? And yes. then <laughs> that article got a, a pretty disproportionate response, right? Or not disproportionate, but did you think it was, when you wrote the article, like, you went through all this stuff, like, the, the event itself was, was intense. Because, I mean, mm -hmm. me and Rob were also there. We saw, I know I spent my day, you know, fucking inter interacting with and intercepting white nationalists, including uh, <laughs> Joey Gibson's punk ass, like, was fucking there, and a bunch of other, uh, Jordan Davis, a few other of these, like, known fash uh, cowards. Uh, we made a pretty great video uh, uh, making fun of Joey Gibson out of his, those are communists, those aren't Antifa, bro. Those are, those are scary. So, but what I I'm saying is, did video. you expect, like, did you expect the, the response that you got from your article? Um, no, I, I remember I got home that day and bear in mind, I still didn't know what had happened down the street that day. Oh yeah. Um, we had, what, Brittany had gotten a picture of the blood on the sidewalk, but we didn't know what happened. We didn't know how the blood had gotten there. Um, we just knew what happened inside the park. That's where all of our reporters were. Mm -hmm. So I get home later that day, I'm watching the news and, um, I had started writing my article. I started writing my article on my phone because I wasn't near a computer. And um, I'm watching the news as I'm kind of jotting stuff down. And I'm seeing they weren't even talking about what happened inside the park. They just kept saying that um, a police officer had, you know, um, been assaulted and he was um, sucker punched and all this stuff. And I was like... That that didn't happen. <laughs> oh, this poor police officer that was attacked for no reason. The classic story in, uh, in American media. Continue. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that's a common narrative. Yeah. Um, but I remember uh, Shelly Zimmerman was up there, the former chief of police for San Diego, and she was like, oh, yeah, um, the, um, you know, our officer is severely injured, but the, um, the suspect is unharmed. Oh, yeah, and, right. So Max starts blowing up my phone, and he's like, Katie, why aren't you reporting about this? What happened? Why didn't you tell me this happened? And I'm like, Max, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, I will find out, but yeah. I don't know what's going on. So I go on Facebook, and um, a big source of my reporting has been involving uh, the activist community. Mm -hmm. So I had a good amount of people within, you know, that I could just reach out to and stuff. And I started reaching out to a few people, and I'm like, what happened? And there was a lot of disinformation. There was one guy who was saying that a Blue Lives Matter shirt-wearing man punched a cop. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that was the big story that was going around at the time, and I didn't understand. It, it didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. So finally, um, I get a link to a, a YouTube video, and they're like, hey, there's this organization called Cop Watch. You should watch the video. Excuse me. Um, you should watch the video that they made about what happened that day. And you'll see what happened. So I'm watching the video. I see, um, obviously, I see Logan Avenue. And then you see what happens in the video. <laughs> and um, you see the, the punch. And you see... Um, I don't remember if this was in Copwatch's video or if in the um, civilian video that I was sent later... But there's another perspective where you see once Jefferson's on the ground and you see the beating, the oh, pepper yeah. spray, the mace, or the um, the tasing. And um, we were like, holy shit. <laughs> 
why why isn't this story being reported on? Why are why isn't anyone talking about the fact that they were clearly approaching Jefferson and Jefferson was walking away? He was backing up. Mm-hmm. No one was telling that narrative. And I went through every single news story about what happened that day, and there was nothing that looked that sounded like what we were seeing in these videos. Oh, of course. And um, I particularly remember the narrative coming out that just uh, that, that Jefferson was a protester who had been arrested, and that like mm-hmm. they didn't specify that the other protesters, the other people who had been arrested, were white nationalists from yeah. the other side. Yeah. So they made they left it open to this assumption that of course it must have been the black and brown working class people on the other side that got arrested yes. and did this violence. I love I love that that that, that was what the, the mainstream media that I saw, that's what they did, was they left it open-ended on purpose mm-hmm. to try and just demonize our side. Even though what happened to Jefferson uh, was was police brutality not really associated with what the, the defense of Chicano Park. Yeah, completely mm-hmm. unrelated. Yeah, yeah and, okay, so going into that, there was a couple of things that just, I remember things weren't lining up when I was looking at stuff. The... Um, I remember specifically it was the article at the LA Times. The picture that they had uh, as the header for the article was um, a Latinx woman and she's her knees are kind of bent and she's looking up and she's screaming at someone, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the picture that they had with the sucker-punched headlines. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, and it said in Chicano Park, and I'm like, okay... But that's Logan Avenue. That's, like, not anywhere near the park. That's not what happened. And it was just a complete mischaracterization, like like you're saying. But even, like, the the subtleties of just, like, putting a picture of what happened inside the park with something that happened outside of there, it just, oh, my God, it infuriated me. And we see it pretty frequently, right, in media a lot of times where they assume just people won't won't fact check. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, people that are listening that aren't familiar with the incident, like with Frederick uh, Jefferson and the other incident, you know, that was basically the biggest part that became a major part of the article. Not only that, but just about what happened in the park in general uh, was the assault and arrest of Frederick Jefferson. Now, Frederick Jefferson, for those that know that don't know, was a 39-year-old man, a black man, African-American man, uh, who, was part of, who was not part of the protest, who would happen to be staying at the Alpha Project. And as, according to, like, testimony was going to get a pancake breakfast just in an area nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you know, he was ultimately, uh, le- you know, assaulted in a, uh, by a SDPD officer and third-generation piglet officer uh, Matthew Ruherio, right? Uh, if that's how you pronounce that pig's name. Uh, and, you know, in your reporting, you did actually, you know, and if I will point out, the only organization that I know of, or no, newspaper that I know of, point out that, you know, Ruggiero, Ruggiero had a less than flattering past, like most mm. pigs, uh, which included racial animus for African Americans, uh, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement, shocker there, and included a uh, two th- uh, 2016 Facebook post where he called Black Lives Matter activists black slime. Uh, mm-hmm. Ruggiero, by the way, you know, would go on and try to sanitize his Facebook and social media posts, <laughs> because that's what totally not guilty people do. Um... And, you know, he's also been just outspoken and, uh, and confrontational throughout this whole process. Uh, so you see, you received at The Sun some pretty negative reactions from the SCPD shocker. Uh, <laughs> and not only for, you know, your reporting on the handling of the whole situation at Chicano Park, but... Uh, but also for the shit that he did on his Facebook about his disgraceful, problematic history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what that incident, and, uh, you know, how that's impacted not only you, but your staff and your professor um, after, that, after the report came out and how that's impacted, you know, what it is to just do the work that you do. 
So, um, I remember when we first found the video, there was a few of us in the newsroom that day, and I was showing Max. And, um, because we hadn't, I had already had the story written up for what happened inside Chicano Park. I had all my sources, um, but I felt like this wasn't connected. Um, I felt like this needed to be a story of its own. And that was a decision that we came to after a little bit because we kind of, a few of us went back and forth. and like, well, it happened the same day, you know. They're being put together in the articles. We should just make it one article. And um, Max and I were like, no, these are two different stories. We need to acknowledge the fact that these are two different stories. Um, but I remember we were sitting in the newsroom and we're watching this video. And when you watch the video, the the interaction happens so quickly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's not something, if you're going to report on it, it's not something you just watch once. <laughs> it, um, <laughs> I remember Max had me watch this video over and over and over again. And, um, you know, it just, <laughs> you're, you're, I remember um, there's a girl screaming in the second video and she's screaming, stop, you're hurting him. Yeah. And that played in my head over and for at least eight months after yeah, um, it's a traumatizing video. yeah yeah absolutely it um and i i remember i was like why isn't why isn't he quoted in any of these articles why haven't why hasn't anyone gone down and gone to the jail to talk to him about what happened that day so i go down there <laughs> and uh that <laughs> i remember so there was a bunch of stuff that happened, but um, I they wouldn't let me in the first time to see him. There was a bunch of complications and a weird encounter with the guy who ran me through the metal detector the second time. There was a bunch of things that happened that I have no definitive proof of this, but it definitely felt like they were trying to stop me from talking to him. Mm-hmm. And they were pulling little... Um, I, my press badge, because you know we're called trade so we do semester by semester... My um, my press badge had not been updated because we had just started the semester, so it said that it expired in um, January, but it was February. And they're like, no, you're not allowed to see him. And I'm like, I'm a college student. You can call my advisor right now. I was very angry, but so I finally get in. Yeah. And we both pick up the phones, and him and I are on the one set of phones that are not working. Gotcha. Yeah. And his, <laughs> his first words to me... Uh, he looked me dead in the eye and he was like, you know why? And I was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and at first I was like, I can't record this. I we, I can't hear him. You know, what am I going to be able to do here? And I was going to leave. And I was like, no, fuck that. I'm going to find a way to do this. So I pulled out my pen and paper and I was writing yes or no questions on the paper, holding it up to the, um, to the, the glass. And I can't read lips, right? So we had a little bit of a dilemma there. So he starts writing letters on the, on the glass and I'm like scribbling it out, trying to figure out what he's trying to tell me and stuff. And he stood up and he showed me the bruising on his ribs. And he was like, I've been trying to get medical attention for five days. They still won't see me. And um, I, uh, <laughs> so I, I leave that day and I, it's, it was weird because like you go, you know, you come out of that building and it's still like a sunny day, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. George Bailey's and, yeah. yeah, and um, I was driving back to the newsroom and it, because the video didn't stop playing through my head as I'm talking to him. 
But I got, you know, like, now he's, like, a real person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was in a complete daze as I was driving back to the paper. And um, I remember I saw my editor-in-chief at the time, and she was walking out. And she's like, oh, hey, how'd the interview go? And (laughs) I mumbled something to her, and I just, I was still in, like, complete shock. And I couldn't talk at that point. And I was just walking in this complete daze into the newsroom. And uh, a friend who had been working on the story with us, um, she was like, hey, how's, uh, how'd it go? And as soon as I saw that person who was just like that safe presence, you know, I broke down sobbing. <laughs> uh, I sat on the couch and I was just uncontrollably sobbing. And I was like, he's innocent. He was railroaded. Um, everything, everything lined up with the video. And I never told him I saw the video. Mm-hmm. Every single thing that he said lined up with that video. And um, I took it to my advisor, and I was like, we, we, have, we have to run this. <laughs> and so he took it to the editorial board, and he was like, I'm going to let you guys decide because this story is going to bring us a lot of heat if we publish it. Um, so I want it to be the decision of the editorial board, and we all we all knew the story of this case. It was something that the entire editorial board was 1,000% passionate about. And we were all invested in it, even if we weren't. some of us weren't there that day. And we voted unanimously to run the story. So you knew the risks going we into the publishing risks. the story. And then, so that's, but, but, you know, being a college paper with, you know, run by uh, people with ideals that want to put them into, into the real world in action, you ran the story. So what happened after you ran the story? Did, did, did you receive any, like, threats? Like, because, I mean, trust me, as someone who, like, both knows you a little bit and just knows how shitty the SDPD is, and I will say that with, you know, total confidence, like, yes, they are indeed shitty and they can eat my entire ass. But... What did you experience, Katie? Because, like, obviously, as a as a student, as a as a writer, as what I would call a nonviolent, like, organize, you know, like as a nonviolent, like, person interested in reporting the truth, what happened when you when you ran the story with regards to the SDPD? Uh, we published a video along with the article, and there was forty eight hours of silence. Nothing happened. We're like, we were all, we were all on edge. We're all prepared. I remember we were, a few of us were at my favorite bar that night and we're just like waiting. Right. And we're just like, no, like it's, it's gonna, and it had been like two days and we're like, okay, you know, they, they just, they haven't read it yet. Like something's going to happen. We were all super on edge. So third day rolls around, we're back at school and we're actually, we were in the middle of an editor's meeting and you know, we're finally like, okay, you know what? Maybe really they don't care that we wrote this bad thing about them. They don't give a shit. So the phone rings. <laughs> and I, um, they told me that it was for me. And I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> <coughs> so I stand up and go over the phone. And it's uh, the PIO of the SDPD, uh, Scott Wall. <laughs> and of the many things <laughs> he screamed at me that day, um, a few of my favorites were saying that I was a disgrace to journalism, that um, he started saying that I had no idea what happened, that I didn't have both sides of the story, 
And I'm like, ooh, you know, it's almost like I'm the only one that has the other side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like I really do have both sides. And yeah. he was like, you haven't seen the body cam footage, blah, blah, blah. If you want to have the real story, you go to the trial. And I was like, oh, I'm already planning on it, sir. Right. <laughs> Don't worry. And then he kept saying something to the extent of, like, let me speak to the man in charge, blah, blah, blah. And so I gave the phone to Max. And... Max was like so chill as Scott as Scott Wall screaming at him, and um, Ma- Max said something like, "Because he kept saying that we didn't have um, we didn't have the evidence, we didn't see the videos, blah blah blah." And Max is like, "Show us your card, sir." <laughs> yeah, right. And he's like, "I would never," and he's just losing his shit. Yeah. So Scott Wall called um, the dean. He called the vice president of the college. He was trying to get me kicked out of school. He was trying to get the paper shut down. Yeah, so, so just to make this clear, like they. <laughs> went through every avenue really to like essentially like ruin your life really like <laughs> they tried yeah toxic toxic angry dude energy all around yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the but the administration stood behind you guys though yeah um yeah you know we've reported on the college in not always a great light but we've never been wrong <laughs> um so we kind of have that protecting us it's almost like we're really good at what we do <laughs> um, <laughs> But he, yeah, they. The main thing was that they wanted the article taken down. He wanted the headline changed, and we're like, no, no, no the story's staying. Yeah. And um, I was, I was like, oh well, if I'm wrong, I'd be happy to change it. But I'd like to see the evidence that proves I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like I pulled on the full white girl voice, like no problem. <laughs> what a bunch of bullies, though, right? That they think that with one angry phone call that they can like. Get something changed, devoid of facts, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> because it makes it makes them feel icky, and therefore, just like by brute force or threat of violence, they can just like get what they want. Oh yeah, I'm happy that they didn't get what they want. Because <laughs> that's what innocent people do, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, innocent people <laughs> take down their take down their Facebook posts <laughs> and demand others like change their stories about them without facts. Uh, but then we're talking about the SDPD, the most, the the least innocent people in the city of San Diego. Uh, but yes, Internet, don't touch that dial. Step off radio. We'll be right back. But first, a couple messages from friends of the show. What up, Step Off Radio? This is Nate Witzel with SDLovesHipHop.com. If you vibe with Rob and the good folks here at Step Off Magazine, then chances are you'll love what's going on with the SD Loves Hip Hop podcast. It's available on all streaming platforms. We recently had San Diego's own Odessa Kane, Bay Area Spitter Locksmith, and 2018 SDMA Artist of the Year nominee Parker Edison on the podcast. Right now we have DJ Bar One, South Central MC Jag both on deck. Come and be a part of the conversation on hip-hop as a catalyst for change over at sdloveshiphop.com. Again, that's SD like San Diego, sdloveshiphop.com. Peace, love, and hip-hop. Facebook posts actually came a few weeks later. So we didn't know about those when I first when we first published the story. Mm-hmm. All at the time what we had um at the time all we had had was um Doc's incredible work showing like he he's the one who made the map. He showed um that it was 212 yards away. He showed the how the the police barricade was diagonal. Um he did amazing work there. Mm-hmm. And um and we had the videos, you know, from um, from Copwatch, and 
So, and Jefferson's testimony, obviously, but yeah. we, you know, we had that. And then, but no one had printed the officer's name yet, so we still didn't know who the officer was. And I scoured every single news article. I was looking for the affidavit, and the affidavit wasn't online, and I'm really good with court records and stuff. And I was like, well, why isn't this anywhere online? I have no problem accessing court records. Mm -hmm. But it was ABC 10, and they briefly, they didn't put his first name, but they showed pictures of the affidavit, and they had the officer's last name in their article. And I was like, well, how the fuck did they get this? And I couldn't find it. So at first I was thinking, like, okay, I'm just, I'm a college reporter. I'm not that good. <laughs> um, but so I was like, okay, I have the guy's last name. I'll just start searching through the entire, like, uh, Transparent California's website. Because it, it was, you know, it wasn't a common name, like Ruggiero. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to find any officer that has his last name. So I start going through Transparent California. <laughs> I finally find Matthew Ruggiero. And I'm like, all right, let's find him on Facebook. And then I go, and it's fucking gold mine. <laughs> and um, I didn't know that we could... I, um, I just started taking screenshots because I was, I was making fun of him. Um, I was taking screenshots, and I was sending it to our editor-in-chief and Max. And I was like, hey, look, this guy's, like, super racist. <laughs> and this is all public, too, right? Yeah, yeah. it's just public Facebook. And um, I was like... It'd be cool if we could report on this. And Max is like, oh, we're printing this. Like, 1,000% we are printing this. <laughs> and oh, yeah. So we had the screenshots, and um, I was like, why isn't anyone else finding these? So we just kept them. And I was like, okay, I guess we have the racist scoop. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one else was really looking into the officer. Everyone just kept talking about how horrible Jefferson was. And... Um, so we kept, I kept visiting him at the jail and talking to him and stuff. And um, when the, uh, the preliminary exam finally happened, um, bear in mind, still no one knew about the screenshots, but I had him on my phone. And um, his, his, uh, the prosecuting attorney was doing a press conference outside of the, um, outside the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the preliminary exam, they basically just, like, show the evidence that it's going to be on both sides. They show the video. Um... You know what? I'll name this guy. So there was a reporter who had come up to me a um, right before the preliminary exam. Mm -hmm. And he said that he knew me because uh, the article had gotten around the county and every news outlet knew that we had reported this. But no one Max had gotten a bunch of emails about us reporting on it. But no one, it was silent. No other news organization was reporting on us saying that it was police brutality and that it was racist and all this stuff. And um, no, you know what? I had printed that article because I was shocked that no one had picked up the, uh, the racist Facebook posts yet. Mm -hmm. um, they were kind of going around the activist community, but no mainstream media organization had picked them up, and I was shocked. I'm like, this proves that this entire thing was rooted in racism. Why isn't, why aren't people talking about this more? Mm -hmm. So, I, that, okay, yeah. So I was at the preliminary exam, and a reporter from NBC comes up to me, <clears throat> and uh, he's like, I know you, and... I was, he, this guy's all over TV on the weekends, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I obviously know this guy because he's on TV. <laughs> and um, he was being very, um, I'll say passive aggressive, um, with, I'll say that kindly. 
if I wanted to be not so kind, I would say extremely sexist. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and he was kind of cracking jokes about how he used to be a college reporter and how, um, how I'd pissed a lot of cops off with my story. <laughs> and I didn't think about it at that moment. I wish I would have been quicker on the draw, but I would have asked him, like, how do you know that I've pissed off a lot of police officers unless you had been talking to them? (laughs) Um, But he started making light jabs at the credibility of our article, and he brought in the credibility of um, Copwatch. And he was like, yeah, you know, a bunch of people, um, or he's like, Copwatch is always posting these videos waiting for suckers like you to latch on to them, and that's what she did. Damn, Wow. And my Victoria, who was with me, um, my my eyes got wide, and I was like, excuse me? <laughs> um, and he started talking about how I shouldn't have made a claim like that before I saw the, the, the body cam footage, but I was still confident. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see what the body cam footage shows inside the preliminary exam today. <laughs> and we go in, and at that point, with the way that everyone doubted the story, I was terrified. And I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the one who screwed this up. And I was, you know, because I'm like all these mainstream professional media outlets are saying I'm wrong (laughs) and I'm panicking and I'm sitting in the courtroom and they're about to start showing the footage and I'm holding my friend's hand because I had been having nightmares like almost every night about the footage of Jefferson since that day that I had played it over and over again and met him and... So I knew it was coming, so I'm holding my friend's hand. <laughs> and um, we're watching it, and we're watching it from the police perspective, and everything was still lining up. And I was like, I'm not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still not wrong. <laughs> yeah. So um, we come out, and I'm like, my heart's racing like crazy. I'm flushed, and I'm like, I'm not wrong. Everything's good. <laughs> I'm safe. I'm not going to get sued. <laughs> I might have gotten sued. Um So the district attorney is uh, doing a press conference with the UT, with um, a few cable networks, because all of them were there filming the preliminary exam. Editor's note. At the time of the Jefferson trial, Mike Riley was deputy district attorney of San Diego County, not just a district attorney. Like, you know what? Like, I already know most of the information. I wasn't going to ask any of the softball questions that they were throwing out. They were throwing out questions like, how's the police officer doing? Like, how's his family feeling? And I was like, I, you know, if I needed quotes from that, like, I could just write them. Pigly. You know, yeah. how they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't going to ask anything because I wasn't, I just wasn't feeling like it. But then they were starting to wrap up and the district attorney asks if there's any more questions. And I was feeling ballsy. (laughs) And I was like, I just have one question. And the reporter that had harassed me a couple of hours prior was standing very close by. And I go, so we see on Officer Ruggiero's Facebook post that he makes numerous posts critical of uh, black activists, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think that played any correlation to what happened outside Chicano Park that day? Nice. (laughs) And and how how did they react? Is this, uh, who's the DA at the time? Because was it District still- Attorney Mike Riley. Okay. Um, Interim at the time. His, yeah. uh, the look he had on his face, 
it was quick. Like no camera could have caught the, the how quickly the look on his face disappeared. But his jaw kind of dropped, and you could tell he didn't know about the Facebook post. Of course. And every reporter around us, like my friend, has the biggest smile on her face because she knows what I just did. And the reporter that had harassed me earlier was looking at me with his jaw dropped. All these reporters had just like completely changed their heads, and they're all looking at me. And he, District Attorney Mike Riley was like, "We have no comment on that." <laughs> And I was like, okay, great, thanks. And so I'm walking out of this courthouse, and Victoria was like, bitch, you just did that. And I was like, I'm freaking out. And we go back to the newsroom. And um, it was less than two hours later, and... um, so I almost drove to Mexico accidentally because I was so side. Her and I were so like wrapped up in everything that happened the preliminary exam. I missed the exit for Southwestern. I realized once I saw the the last USA exit, I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> like outlet, outlet, outlet stop at Las Americas on accident. Of course, that's right. what I, that's why it happens with me. It's like, well, it looks like I'm stopping for half a second. Yeah, um, yeah. That's 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 an intense story, and I love the like part about like cop watch you. Like we all know certain people, right, that do the cop watch stuff. And I will call them way more credible than Absolutely. any fucking pig that I've ever talked to yes. who, whose answer is always going to be covering their own ass. So thank you thank you for, like, pointing out this, like, laughable NBC, like, like journalist that, like, made this reference that, like, the cops are so trustworthy, but Cop Watch, a community org that, like, just posts video, that's, like, all they basically do, uh, oh, yeah. are less trustworthy. What a dumbass. Anyways, um... Oh. Uh, and then quick uh, quick detail. So we finally get back to the newsroom, and in the time that it took us to leave downtown, almost go to Mexico, and then get back to Southwestern, uh, I checked his face. I checked uh, Officer Rujaro's Facebook again, just you know to see, and it it was wiped. It was wiped, and then he changed his name from Matt Ruggiero to uh, Tango and Cash. What the fuck, corny? Like, what a, hold on. What a corny-ass punk. Like, Tango and Cash, dude, come on. Oh, this, like, this is why they become pigs, I guess. But what you're saying is that within, like, it goes to show how fast, you know, what you did actually just traveled. Whereas, like, how, what do you think? Do you think he would have changed his Facebook or, or edited his Facebook if you hadn't brought up those those that those comments in public, no, no idea. He he wouldn't have because he wouldn't have seen any fault in it. Of course, yeah. You know, and some of those posts were from 2017. Like that's the last thing on his mind. You know. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I just I remember waiting until the last question. I was like, fuck it, this is the time to show my card. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for doing that, Katie. I appreciate the like putting both the DA, the interim DA, and this corrupt ass probably feels impervious to like any sort of like retribution or uh, accountability, police officer. Uh, that you can't just post bullshit. Like, let me put this way: all of us are accountable to our employers and all sorts of bullshit. But what we post on Facebook, it should they, it should very much be that way for people that carry a gun and, and wander around acting like they're like above the law. Absolutely. Now, your team at Southwestern uh, has, in my opinion, by far the most accurate and critical analysis of um, SDPD and their whole handling of the protests in Chicano Park out of any media outlet here in San Diego. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, you guys used satellite imagery to show exactly where the arrest of Mr. Jefferson took place. You used maps and diagrams to show which direction each side was coming from, as well as made the efforts to obtain the civilian video and the subsequent arrest that took uh, place outside the park. Uh, not one media outlet in the entire city took this amount of time and dedication to actually report these details in their coverage. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, I've thought about that a lot. 
I have a few ideas, and honestly, there's probably... We're never going to get a definitive answer on this, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and a kind of a positive, light-hearted answer, I guess. Um, we don't get paid, so we have a little more time on our hands. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and then kind of the other side of that is we don't get paid... <laughs> We don't have to worry about any overhead or, you know, bribery or, oh, well, you know, we have to, you know, speaking from a mainstream media perspective, like, oh, we have to worry about what our producers are thinking. We can't piss off the cops, Um, which, you know, we had we had no qualms because, again, we had no big political oversight hanging over our heads. We just wanted the truth. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, like, um, kind of going in with that um your beat that you commonly cover um it very commonly is around police brutality and officer misconduct mm-hmm. um mainstream media outlets in san diego being uh, no exception almost universally seem to take police accounts and narratives as gospel yeah. um oftentimes yeah. you can watch this coverage on the news and they sound more like stylized reports than actual independent journalism <laughs> um why do you think journalists by and large um I know you kind of said this already, but, like, by most mainstream news outlets, why do you think they're so leery and reluctant to be openly critical of law enforcement and the reporting, even though it's protected, you know, really, to be critical of these officers? There's so many levels of fear there. For one, there's fear of pissing off the police. There's fear of being that news organization that's viewed as bias, and God forbid you have a healthy police pers- a healthy perspective on the police and because it's not having a less than positive perspective on the police is suddenly seen as this outright protest against the country which <laughs> I won't go into that too much <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but it's always seen as this big um, revolutionary act to be even slightly critical yes. of the police can I ask you one thing, Katie? Yes. <laughs> Just as a journalist, like, have you ever noticed, like, me, I, I've, I write, you know, occasionally, like, and do our own thing for, like, uh, Liberation News and stuff, but uh, have you noticed that, like, I've noticed this with police brutality specifically, that anytime the cops, like, whether they, you know, violently murder somebody, beat somebody up or something, that, like, regardless of what station, the CBS, ABC, you know, Fox 5, all of these local news stations, they basically run the same story, which is, mm-hmm. like... You know, minus, like, maybe a couple of, like, so, like uh, aesthetic differences. It basically is, like, here's what the police said. There's, like, you know, this is maybe, like, the age of the person who died. But there's no real difference in reporting. It's, like, I feel like they're all the same. Is that just me or is that something that you would say is, like, kind of the trend when it comes to police reporting or no, police brutality? It, and that's even bigger than just police brutality. That's on anything lightly controversial, anything that needs a real accurate, like, report you don't see it in the mainstream media um you don't you especially cable major cable networks you do not see it um they are spoon-fed the same information there's no real there's no passion there there's no empathy there's no sympathy there's nothing of that nature that even remotely resent uh represents humanity mm-hmm. and they're just they're reading words off a screen you know um there was to kind of I tell my, this is one of those stories that I tell a lot of the, um, my new students when I'm giving lectures and stuff at the Sun, um, specifically about this story. Um, During the Jefferson trial, there was a Fox reporter who was there covering it for the first day of trial. And, 
he um, he was talking to us outside, and he was because um, there's this there's a healthy um, there's this dynamic in journalism where a lot of people want to raise up the young in journalism. So there's a lot of mentorships. There's a lot of advice always passed around. It's not a super competitive field in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, In regards to, like, you know, peer competitive, it's insane. (laughs) So he's talking to um, myself... The, um, a friend of mine was the videographer for the trial, um, Aran Zakayas. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing the video and Victoria, the three of us were standing there outside the trial and the way that this Fox reporter worded it, cause he started, he started saying to us that you can't be, I knew he had to have read the story, but he was <laughs> like, you can't be, um, an activist and a journalist. You have to decide between one or the other, but you cannot be both. And the three of us are looking at each other, and we're like, okay, we're not going to argue with you right now, but we completely disagree, but whatever. Um, because, I, I, I mean, I feel like accurate journalism is an act of um, activism. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, so, like, the fact... That, okay, so he starts giving this example. And he says, word for word, um, <laughs> if you see a building on fire with a bunch of kids in it, you're not supposed to want to go in and save them. You're supposed to say, oh, cool, look, there's a building on fire, and film it. And I remember that the way that he was so nonchalant about this, the way he was so nonchalant about the Jefferson story, because he he even said he didn't know anything about the story. He was just assigned it. He didn't give a shit. And he kept saying to us that it's better to not know too much about stories because it's easier to report them and it's more accurate. What kind of aggressive shit is that? It was infuriating. (laughs) And um, I'm always telling my students um, there's the the biggest thing that I'm always trying to get into their heads is a lot of mainstream media will kind of just parrot what each side is saying, Mm -hmm. but they never tell you the truth. Yeah. And that is the biggest thing with my students is I'm always telling them, sure, you can report both sides, get every angle of the story. That's what your that's what your job is. But it is also your job to take all that information and tell people what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And that's a big thing that is missing from the mainstream media is you don't hear the truth. You hear little sound bites and echoes of whatever the other organizations are saying. Both sides. Yeah. Quote unquote. Now, you guys followed this story for months. Uh, you can, like you said, you conducted multiple interviews with Mr. Jefferson at Bailey Detention Facility in Otai. Um, what were your guys' initial reaction when it was reported that uh, Jefferson was being extradited at Baltimore for a, for a suspected uh, rape charge? Uh, this was a man that you had been corresponding with for uh, months on the story. What goes through your head when this new allegation is made? I um, We went to that trial every single day. We were there when he was found guilty. Uh, we were there at every single time the officer's parents laughed at Jefferson. We were there every time Roger Ogden came to the trial. Um, Side note, Roger Ogden is the original <laughs> um, organizer of the first Patriot Picnic uh, uh Occupation in Chicano Park back in 2017. Wrinkly ass, Winnie the Pooh looking motherfucker. <laughs> um, he still comments on my articles to this day and says that uh, I promote brown supremacy. 
<laughs> um, with a handful of other things. But I always, I always loved that um, I promote brown supremacy. <laughs> I'm like, cool. <laughs> um, but so we were there every single day, you know, for aside from covering it for months, you know, the trial, it lasted for two weeks and we spent every day, every, you know, and, uh, the sentencing was, um, a month exactly one month later. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten the day mixed up and it was the one day I wasn't there. So I wasn't in the courtroom when he was sentenced. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember I, um, again, I didn't think I had to do anything that day, so I'd overslept. And um, I was looking at my phone, and I was checking Twitter, and I see the article. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I missed this thing that I quit my job to cover. I missed this thing that I kind of gave up my mental health for. I missed this thing that has consumed my life for the last six, eight months, you know. And I'm reading the article, and I, I saw... <laughs> saw it <laughs> that you know he was uh that he was being extradited and why he was being extradited and um it <laughs> it's so you know up until then it had always been such a black and white picture for me mm-hmm. it had always been he was railroaded by the cops which I still 1000% believe um but you spend six months defending this man's basic human rights only to find out that he may have potentially violated someone else's. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, um, it hurt. (laughs) It hurt in a way that maybe it shouldn't have, you know? Um, But I also believe that the, the feelings that all of us had at the paper about the story the entire time the passion and the motivation was the reason that the truth got put out there Mm -hmm. and you know while we will never know if that if what was happening in Baltimore was real I mean it's still it's it's likely you know it's it there's they they allegedly said they had DNA evidence I I still whether we knew or not, I still was processing it as if it were true. And it felt like a betrayal in a weird way. It um, it took the situation that, like, that we, again, that, I, that we had all seen as black and white, and it added this weird layer onto it that none of us really knew how to process. Mm-hmm. That we still, that some of us still don't know how to process. No doubt. And I mean, it sounds like that would have been just like a horrible ordeal to have to go through. We're in the middle of already another ordeal, right? Um, and it sounds like something that not only the San Diego police uh, are, you know, with their history of taking people's DNA, both without their consent, uh, specifically youth, where they got in trouble for that, maintaining their own database for DNA. But then, of course, the timing of it, as someone who has had what they call the PC-269 warrant uh, against them, which is the warrant they use to forcibly take your DNA without your consent. Uh, and like I said, was never convicted of a crime uh, for anything that I did with regards to politics. <laughs> um, 
I'm also very skeptical. You know, like I said, I don't necessarily need to know the whole story, right? Like, because it could be true, right? It could be very well true that he did commit this assault. The timing is what always drew me. My, yeah. my interest in it was like, okay, so... Not only is this person being convicted uh, for seven years, right, for a crime that, like, I would have called self-defense when the cop, which for those who don't know, this, the underlying issue was that the cop who struck him with a billy club first, undeniably first, uh, was not guilty of, over, you know, exercising, you know, an abuse of authority or, 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 uh, or power or assault of any kind, but that the self-defense factor of defending yourself against this attack was what he was getting seven years for. And ultimately, you know, just adding on the, like, we're going to extradite you, which in itself doesn't is, isn't a, like a, a guarantee of, of guilt or anything like that, like, right? It just means that, like, you're on trial and there's evidence, right? Which, let me just put it this way. I've sat in this in a downtown central jail cell with, you know, accused of crimes that I have not committed. Uh <laughs> But like I said, I, I, I think it's interesting, right? I, and that, how the emotional roller coaster that goes through, like, having to decide, like, or questioning your own, not sanity, but questioning your own, like, judgment about, like, yeah. am, I do, am I supporting a good person or am I not? And the, with everything the state's trying to do also to demonize them yeah. uh, in the process. And that was a big thing. Yeah, that was, you know, one of my first thoughts was, what if we had potentially been defending a rapist for the last six months. Ooh, that's bad. No one wants to do that. No one yeah. wants to yeah. be that no person. No one wants to do that. Um, and I, that was a big question that the people who mainly covered this, who were with me with the story, because, you know, my name was on the byline, but there were so many people in that newsroom and outside the newsroom, but a lot of Sunnies, they went through this ride right along with me, you know? And, um, yeah. like, the, the friend who filmed the entire thing, it, um... They this hit them as hard as it did me, and um, but kind of going back to something you said briefly um, when you were talking about the trial and the evidence and whatnot, there was a moment that because we we still had hope, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we we were like, there's clear evidence that there was racism involved. The video showed that it was self defense. We had hope, <laughs> and. Might have been the downfall of us, um, but I remember, I remember when um, we were in the courtroom one day, and because the the defense attorney had told me he was going to be using my article as evidence in the trial, which meant the racist Facebook posts. But they got removed from the trial because they said that the judge said they weren't relevant before it ever went to jury. Wow. So as soon as soon as those Facebook posts were removed from evidence, I. I remember walking out of that courtroom and I was crying as we were walking to my car and I was like, he's lost there. He's found guilty, you know, because if they're saying that officer Jero hitting him first has no correlation to the racist Facebook posts, he's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And cause that was, that was a big part of the defense is that it was self-defense and he was scared that it was racist. And I knew as soon as that was taken off that he had lost. And yeah, and that you know, and that kind of perfectly transitions us into my next question, right? Which is obviously we kind of touched on it a little bit. You know, Frederick Jefferson is sketched, you know, sentenced to seven years for this crime, you know, in state prison, uh, specifically for, you know, like, you know, assault with the force likely to create, you know, great bodily injury, which sounds really scary and resisting arrest, you know, I've been there. Um Ten days later, it's reported, though, that he's hung himself, right? Or I don't know if it was reported that it was a suicide, but they reported an in-death custody, right? Or an in-custody death. 
Uh, and so, you know, obviously, you know, we've gotten to some emotional stuff kind of already about, like, you know, how long this case was, the connection you felt and, like, other organizers felt and, like, other reporters even felt to this case. Um, but what, did, you know, what, did, what, what was going through your mind? What was your reaction uh, and specifically the rest of the Sun's reaction, if you have, you know, opinion about it. But when this specific information about Frederick taking his own life, um, the day after his charge, right, which, yeah. you know, it's horrible, right? It's, like, obviously horrible. We know the, you know, certain context around, like, why this is happening. But, you know, without, you know, making you uncomfortable, like, how did, how did, the, how did that feel, you know? Like, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, um... So, uh, he, um, sorry. No, it's of course, uh, yeah. So he had hung himself September 1st, you know, mm-hmm. less than 24 hours after the, um, after he was found guilty. And, um, so September 3rd, uh, I was, my car needed to get work done, <laughs> And so a friend of mine said that he would meet me at Chicano Park and he would look at my car for me because I had, my brakes were broken, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm at Chicano Park. I had not been back to Chicano Park since February 3rd. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am standing 212 yards away from where Jefferson was brutalized. I'm in the park and it's the, I didn't make the connection at the time. But it was the one-year anniversary of the first time that the white nationalists had come to Chicano Park. Mm -hmm. So it was exactly to that day one year later. And uh, my friend Siobhan and I were in the park, and she had been um, one of the people who was going to the trial a lot as well. And she was, you know, have again, like, when I, I'll add sub-notes in saying that uh, this Sonny was invested. This one was, but we all we all were. You know, there mm-hmm. was a few that went to the trial and stuff continuously, but all of us were heavily invested in this. Mm-hmm. But so Victoria, the one who um, who had been there through a lot of it, she calls me while I'm standing in the park, and she's like, "Dude, are you watching the news?" And I was like, "No, I'm in Chicano Park. What's up?" And she's like, "Jefferson died," mm-hmm. and I was like. <laughs> what (laughs) and um I just kind of I was just standing there on the phone and stuff and she's just throwing a bunch of information at me she's going a mile a minute and I'm just kind of standing there you know on my phone in the park and um you know my stomach drops and I was just kind of pacing back and forth at the park and um I was going to walk over to the spot where it happened, and then I got to the light, and I was like, nope, I got, nope. <laughs> um, so I turned around, and, like, I, there was a lot of tears, a lot of tears. Totally understandable. Um, yeah. You know, it, um, there was a lot of people before the, before the, before the trial, when I found the evidence, when we still had a bunch of hope, um, there was a bunch of people who, told me that my reporting had saved this man's life. And, you know, again, when you had hope, it was really easy to believe that. And it's easy to think that you can beat the system. And then you didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then he's dead. 
and I went back to the newsroom, was bawling my eyes out on the floor, <laughs> um, and um, I, uh, <laughs> I just remember I could not stop crying, mm-hmm. and there were so many different emotions there because it was... It was like a loss, but then I was still, you know, I had found out about the rape just a few mm. days ago, and I was still confused about that, and I I took the time to separate the rape and what happened that day, the alleged rape, and what happened that day, because no matter who he was as a person, it doesn't change what those police did to him. Right. Yeah. And my first thought after I kind of calmed down a little bit, um, of course, I, you know, I immediately went to, did they kill him? Yeah. Um, That was the first thought I had. And then I was seeing a bunch of Facebook posts saying, like, the police killed Jefferson. And, um, you know, there wasn't any, like anything that proved it, but of course it was a thought. Mm-hmm. And I requested the autopsy report, and I didn't get it until months later. But um, I was reading over reports and things, the the press release that um, the sheriff's department did. And, you know, the way... I'll never entirely rule it out, but the way Jefferson talked to me, it was... He never... he. Hate, like I mean, of course, no one likes being in prison. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He, the way he talked about it, it wouldn't. It never surprised me that he would rather commit suicide than go to prison. Yeah. Um, because it was at that point, it could have potentially not just been seven years. You yeah. know, if the rape charge got added onto that as well, that could have been a lot longer. Oh, yeah, he's doing life basically. And so the 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 suicide. Of course, it shocked me, but it didn't, at that root, it didn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, it made sense to me, which is why I didn't latch too, too hard onto the idea of them killing him because it mm. made so much sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, uh, before we move on to the, like, because I think that's, like, one of our last questions before we move on to, like, just more general press stuff, but, but I really wanted to talk one more thing about uh, Jefferson yeah. and ask you, like, do you hold... Not only this officer, Rujerio, you know, pig, whatever his name is, um, but the city of San Diego, right? Like, if if Officer Rujerio hadn't escalated the situation, arguably Jefferson, you know, would have gotten his pancake breakfast and not be dead right now, right? Yeah. So is yeah. the city, so is this, like, even though, like, you know, he may have hung himself, right? We will never know, because this is unfortunately one of, like, what, six or seven in custody police deaths that we know about here mm-hmm. just in the last year in San Diego. Yeah. Um, but do you do you hold SDPD in the in the city you know accountable or culpable for that? Um, for 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 the behavior of their officer, ultimately this man may have taken his own life. Um, but he wouldn't have if it wasn't for the crime of should the crime of jaywalking, right? Arguably the crime of jaywalking lead to not only a violent, brutal assault, which we spent most of this episode talking about uh but eventually like a situation where someone feels like they need to take their life which san diego county has like one of the record highs for people taking their life in county jail yeah uh i just wanted to ask your opinion about that before we move on yeah so there's a few layers to that Mm -hmm. um the events specifically of that day so i um during the preliminary exam uh ruggiero's partner 
uh, Officer Tenenbaum, he started talking, because Ruggiero wasn't at the preliminary exam because his jaw was wired shut. Um, Sorry. So Tenenbaum was up on the stand, and he was talking about the police briefing that morning. And he was telling the court the information that they had received about Chicano Park that morning. And he was talking about how they were told to look for um, people in red, uh, people in red and people in black, because um, because anyone who was wearing red and black was considered Antifa. Huh. <laughs> and I'm sitting there as I'm hearing this, and I was like, "That's that, but that that's not. No, you're getting your colors mixed up, my guy. There's yeah. there's a whole other level that you're not tapping into." Um, <laughs> yeah, and he, and he was wearing a red shirt and black jeans, but that had nothing exactly. to do with it, right? Exactly. Um, so then also uh, uh, more misinformation that went in, the officers went into it that day is they didn't, um, Tenenbaum, the way Tenenbaum presented the information was that they were never told about the Roger Ogden portion of it. They were told that it was uh, an immigration protest. God, yeah. God, yeah. God I hate the SDPD. Protest. I'm sorry. For the, and, for the FBI listening, I hate the SDPD. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and there was, um, they painted the two signs as, uh, pro-American and anti-American. And so this is the information that the cops went in with, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so on surface, I absolutely blame um, Ruggiero. I blame the police. I blame the misinformation. But at its root, I blame Ogden. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. He... He is the reason that all of this stuff started happening against Chicano Park, that they started attacking this, you know, this, like, cultural... You guys know how amazing Chicano Park is. Yeah, it's, it's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like it's such a place of love and solidarity. And, you know, like there's revolutionaries everywhere on the walls. And yeah. the fact that you're going to come in there and say that this place is like built on hatred and it's 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 built on everything but that, you know, yeah. and it's built despite that. Yeah. yeah. And if Ogden had not started this war that protest would have never happened. Right. Yes. And those police would have never been there that day. Yeah. And Jefferson would have never been, you know, un, um, wrongly put in with yeah. the protesters and every... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's no, totally... No, I mean, no. we, we, I, don't, I don't mean to make us go down this road of what ifs, right? Because arguably, yeah. what if capitalism in America never existed and we were all just like free and happy to live in a, a, in a future space communism where everyone was taken care of? <laughs> And that's, you know, I don't mean to, like, get into what ifs, but, I mean, like, I, yeah, I agree with exactly what you're saying. I just can't help but feel, like, the city and Roger, too, who Roger by himself is not anything new, right? He is yeah. just the latest embodiment of white hate for our community, yeah, of yeah. this settler colonial mindset of this assimilate or die, basically, assimilate or get out. So I think it's good that you pointed out that Roger Ogden, thank you for that, yes. because I didn't even, I didn't, I, I, trust me, I need any excuse to give, put blame. I think in past things we've just randomly shit talked Roger Ogden so I don't really need much of a reason to just call out Roger boy like for for being just like one firm push away from just like being the world's like the world being free of his problems but you know like I said I just wanted to very much appreciate that about what you said before we moved on to just more journalistic stuff <laughs> that involves less me about screaming about how much I hate SDPD, which is valid. And like I said, easily search me, search me on, on the internet and you'll see. I'm fully documented as being a hater of SDPD um, for good reason. Um, but before we move forward, I guess 
you know, we all know. I don't know. You said you came from Big Bear, um, but you know this area, right? San Diego. You've been here enough, long enough, right? To like see that we get a lot of people from out of town. You know, the region region is constantly gets an influx of people from. You know, all over the country, Ohio, Michigan, stuff like that, both because it's like, you know, the largest military base in the West Coast, which, you know, don't get me started on how I feel about, you know, U.S. imperialism. But, you know, that just kind of like skews its politics. Uh, it makes it a little bit farther to the right. Like, it's been joked that San Diego is like a purple city, right? That it's yeah. like, you know, blue, but it's really, really kind of with a red tinge to it. Uh, <laughs> Do you think that, like, you know, do you think that this kind of unique environment, both with, like, the military and then people, I don't want to say that lick boots, but that support the police and the military that make up such a huge percentage of the city, do you think that it has an influence uh, in how, like, the news is reported and how people, you know, report news coverage here in San Diego? Absolutely. Um, So I kind of, I'm sometimes in, like, my little bubble in the newsroom where the majority of my friends and my, you know, the people on uh, the staff, we all kind of think the same way. There's some, there's always a few differences and it sometimes ends up in screaming matches, but, (laughs) um, but I kind of, I sometimes don't really see the, the right, um, the military, because I'm sometimes in my bubble, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when I get out of that bubble, I'm like, oh, wow, there's a whole other side of this stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously. But um, I... So say you have the... And I'm... I'll put this gently, but I'm lightly critical of imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I have, I have my opinions about that. But um, you also, in... I'll say in contrast to that, yes, you see the the right wing, the military, the, um, you know, some of the white nationalists, some of the KKK members that have come out of Pendleton that we were seeing reports on lately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, which was not a big shocker, but I loved reading the article. <laughs> um, but I like to think of, in contrast to that, the people that I've met that are combating that and that are combating ev- all the bad shit that you see going on in the world right now. Um I, that's the stuff that I like to focus on because while you do have this heavy military presence, you also have um, a heavy migrant and undocumented presence here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you have the people who are fighting for their lives. You have the people that are fighting for the good. <laughs> and while it makes it, a, it, it definitely makes it a unique um, place to report because it's, it like you said, it's not one side or the other. There's such a mix here, and it definitely bleeds purple sometimes. But um, I just like to focus on the people that are actually trying to make change. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, kind of going into that, uh, we live in an era where the free press is under attack more than any time in really modern history. Um, we live in a time period where the so-called president of the United States calls the press the enemy of the people, where uh, anyone or any time any type of negative coverage is branded as quote-unquote fake news, and even to the point where violent, dangerous individuals um, immersed in this cult of personality have, that comes to define Trumpism have um, actually become come under the influence of this by this dangerous rhetoric and violently taken the lives of journalists. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on this disturbing atmosphere that's been fostered by this dangerous rhetoric of Donald Trump and the far right that's perpetuated by his followers? So uh, there's a quote by Flannery O'Connor, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but it's essentially saying um, the truth isn't any less real just because you don't have the ability to stomach it. Yeah. And, you know, it. Um, I think that's a big thing with this whole the fake news era is that people lightly disagree and they're automatically, you know, especially with the digital era, you can swipe away things you don't like to see or that you don't agree with. And it makes it so easy to just push away anything that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have Trump who is trying really hard to uh, put, to, you know, to eliminate journalists. Um, and I'll, I'm saying that with a gentle tone. <laughs> um, but he's absolutely a threat to the free press. But more than that, even if Trump is full of shit, which he obviously is, the way that people respond to his rhetoric is more of a threat than Trump will ever be. Um, he is a violent and stupid and callous and reckless man, but he inspires the violent and stupid and reckless and callous people. And once you start discrediting anything that is true or contradictory to your government, that's when fascism starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. it, um, once you, once you no longer have a free press, a dedicated, and it also involves having a dedicated press, you know, because even the the free press, um, there's organizations and stuff that even with their their pow- with their power, they don't recognize that they should be utilizing it differently. Um, the good organizations usually don't have the best money. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. And there, as a Marxist, we would like as me, I would say, <laughs> as a member of the PSO, that it's in the inherent class class uh, interests of these organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like we kind of talked about in the, the previously, what incentive does or what interest does like a major like NBC local news station have in stirring the pot when mm-hmm. their entire existence is kind of rooted in the maintenance of the status quo, right? Yeah, and of, exactly. like, reporting and having these, you know, why report on police brutality? Because you need that police liaison to give you, you know, cushy, extra, you know, whatever. Like, have that relationship to, to write your stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, in a way, like, the press, you know, like I said, is functioning in my mind uh, the way it's supposed to, right? Which is the, like, <laughs> what needs to be, what, you know, the information that wants to be promoted, whether that's, like, look at how bad Venezuela is or something, that stuff's getting promoted uh, because it's it's universally in the best in the interest of the ruling class that owns the papers and does that stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, like you said, a lot of the truth, right, the stuff that makes people cringe, isn't as valued, and therefore, like, when it does somehow make its way onto the mainstream, it's just derided as fake news by mm-hmm. a society that doesn't want to look at it because it's like mm-hmm. this makes me feel bad. I want to watch Doctor Pimp Popper, Ninety Day Fiance, and shit. Nothing against people that like to de- unwind, watch that shit. I personally think it's disgusting. I can't watch it, and you know anything on TLC gives me like fucking headaches. But. You know, like I said, like I could see why, yeah, people would feel that way. But I think that we gotta always remember. At least I just want me be the the broken record of communism over here. Just like it's about it's about class and it's about material material fucking uh, conditions. And yeah. continue <laughs> back to like back to journalism. 
segment. Yeah, today's segment. We're gonna talk about Chicano Park, and Jose's gonna scream about communism. So yeah. With that said, Katie, uh, who would you say are the most significant and influential individuals in your life and your work as a journalist? Okay, so there's a few people. Um, Honestly, it... So Max really started it for me. He... um, The way that he presents journalism and the way that he raises uh, his students, it... um, it's unparalleled to a lot of programs. He, the way that he teaches us, and you know, the first, the very first class of every semester is always about ethics, and you know, the code of ethics and journalism and stuff. <clears throat> and we talk a lot about doing more harm than good. Um, and you know, Max, um, Max raised me as a journalist, but he also raised the my friends who. I respect immensely. And when you're when you surround yourself with people who are willing to, you know, put their lives sometimes at risk and to fight the good fight, it um you know, and I'm speaking inside newspaper and out in that regards, but it um when you see people that are willing to put in that kind of work, you can't help but want to be a part of it somehow. Mm-hmm. And journalism has always been that way for me. It's that way to try my damnedest to make sure that the right information is out there. Um, but then there's also, if she hears this, she's going to kill me, but um, there's this reporter named Brooke Binkowski. And yes. she, uh, former uh, managing editor Snopes. of Snopes. Yes. yes. Um, this woman... <laughs> I met her at um, an SPJ Society of Professional Journalists banquet, and she was the uh, she was a speaker that night. And I was just barely I had barely just cracked into news. Um, I was at this awards ceremony, and I wasn't even up for awards. But Max would always make sure that like students could go and see like what she could potentially be. <clears throat> and I'm watching Brooke. And I'd read a couple of her articles because she's known for Snopes, but her um, her main beat is immigration reporting. Mm-hmm. She's one of the top immigration reporters in the country, and she has been for like 20 years. And I'm watching her, and I've read a few of her articles, and I'm just hard eyes, right? And she's, um, she's a little buzzed, <laughs> and she's going off on this whole um, fuck Trump, very like, you know, radical kind of speech. And I'm just, I am like in complete awe of her. And I go up to her, and I'm super shy and awkward, and I was like, hi, you know, I just, I, I really love your work, and your speech is great. <laughs> and she's like, follow me on Twitter. And I was like, okay. So I followed her on Twitter, and we became, like, actual friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird. I, I still feel weird even calling her my friend, but we talk on almost a daily basis, and she's she tells me all of her stories about the national coverage she's doing. But um, Max... <laughs> I'll say affectionately, but Max calls her a maverick. <laughs> um, and But she's just, she embodies everything that y- you want to be in a journalist. And she realizes um, that she, she realizes the power that she has and she's always using it for good, even if it's at the expense of her own life sometimes. And um, she is just, she's always trying to make a change in the world. And there's like a small cult following of Sunnies that I tell her all the time that she has a cult following at the Sun. <laughs> um, 
because we all just respect the work she does immensely. Like, if there's any reporter that I want to be, it's her. Yeah. <laughs> she, um, she's miraculous. She's amazing. She's an amazing mentor. Um, and she's on the board of directors at SPJ. But... <laughs> Uh, she's, she's a brilliant woman, talented reporter, feisty as hell, hates Roger Ogden. There we go. <laughs> Points of unity yes. to, 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 go, to, to align around. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's about all I got. Okay. Um, overall, what has been the most gratifying or fulfilling moment or experience working as a reporter? And conversely, what's been the most difficult part or experience thus far? So... The difficult, um, I'll go the difficult so I can end on a high note. Um, the difficult was the story that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And um, I've won national awards for this story, and it hurts every time I do. Um, we flew out for, we won this big Freedom of Press Award, and we flew out to Kentucky in October to accept it. And I hadn't fully led on to everybody in my life yet how profoundly this story had affected me. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't tell people, I told a couple of people, but I wasn't telling people that I was having nightmares every night, that I wasn't sleeping, um, that I was hearing the voices in that video every single day, the the one that I mentioned earlier. And um, I didn't talk about how I did not stop thinking about every aspect of this story at almost all times of the day. Um, and it, it broke me. <laughs> um, it really hurt. And like, I know it's not, it's not a unique story and that's what makes you even angrier, you know, because you know, this is happening every day in the country. and Some people just don't give a shit and no one's talking about it. But Um, A thing that a lot of people don't talk about is, like, the trauma that journalists face and the emotional impact that it has and that you have to give up a lot mentally to put this information out there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would go and accept these awards. We would go and accept these awards and stuff, and we'd be treated like rock stars sometimes at these conferences, and it it was such a weird experience because you're like you know a man died I won these awards because a man died it's surreal yeah yeah and um you know it uh I some people tell me like he would have been happy that you got his story out and that you were it was getting so widely read but at the same time it's like okay but he's still dead yeah (laughs) and um but then consequently, or I guess that's not the right word for it, but um, kind of going into, you said, like, the highlights of that, I do have experiences now that very few college reporters do. And I have a unique perspective on this, again, that is not taught at a lot of college um, newspapers, you know, because they they preach so much about getting both sides, but they never tell you what to do after you get both sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the best part of everything with the newspaper and with what's happened in the last year is with, with me being editor-in-chief right now, I am working with my students on a daily basis. I know, and a lot of them come in with zero experience. I get to 
teach them from the very bottom up. And I get to watch these students who come in and they have no idea what they're doing and they have, they know that they have a lot of passion and they don't like what's going on, but they don't know how to change that and they don't have the tools yet to do it. But they still come every day and they're still so excited about reporting and you see that they want to make a difference and getting to work with these students who are so passionate and who care so much <laughs> and being able to make sure that they're actually being taught properly. <laughs> um, that has been the best part of this is getting, you know, some of them have heard my stories four and five times over again because I'm a total like dementia mom. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's just, it's teaching them how, like, what's important with journalism and how to not be, like, the fox guy outside of the courtroom saying, you know, <laughs> everything that he said with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of talked about it a little bit. You kind of brought, like, you know, like, the, the talking and working and, and, and passing off this knowledge to your students and these younger sonnies is what kind of inspires you uh, in, the, in the field that you're doing, uh, specifically a field that is continually under attack, you know, like you said, the free press, but also community college, I'm sure, just like anything is like, you know, always scrambling to find something to spend find money on money that's not student-centered or something like that. <laughs> um, that being said, though, like, is there anything else that, you know, drives you or inspires you before we move on um, onto a different topic because you kind of touched on it a little bit, but is there anything else? Like you mentioned, like the students, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but just before we move on, is there like any, just like one driving summarized point that you're just like, this is what, this is what inspires me to keep going. Um, a big thing, even before I was in like a teaching position, um, the big thing that has always driven me was elevating voices that are typically silenced. That is the big thing that I've always aimed to do with my reporting is put people's voices that are typically silenced on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to speak for them. I want them to speak for themselves when mainstream media typically ignores them. Mm -hmm. um, that has always been, you know, I love a good underdog story. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I just, I like to make sure that the right voices are heard, and sometimes it's them being heard for the first time. Um, because, you know, I mean, we, we've all heard quotes about how history is written by the winning side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, um, it's those underrepresented voices that need to be heard because they are silenced by the mainstream media so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What advice do you have for young journalists and reporters who want to get into the business, especially those that are looking to get into investigative journalism at the local level that's perhaps more important than ever these days? Um, so I always encourage my students to read solid publications. Um, I heavily, I usually heavily encourage, um, like for local reporting, um, I'll encourage Voice of San Diego, uh, Liberation News, um, <laughs> I like that one. If you, you can't see, but I'm over here like going my fingers crazy. Yeah, some of their local reporting has been really solid. <laughs> um, 
Coming from Katie, that means a lot. Just like no one understands how much I'm gushing over here. That means that means a lot coming from this person we're talking to. Thank you. Um, but um, a big thing is I don't shy away from telling my students stories of when I fucked up. Um, I have no qualms telling them about all the mistakes I've made and because, you know, I mean, that's how you learn. Yeah. <laughs> um but the um, a big thing that I also typically hit on is um, I, we kind of briefly talked about it a few times over um, the last couple of hours. But the 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 biggest difference with reporting both sides and then what is the truth? Um, and I like we have exercises sometimes where we'll read news articles and stuff. And the people who have kind of worked with me and stuff, they see it more and more. And they'll, um, like Brittany, one time she um, came up to me and she was talking about how um, she'll be reading news articles and stuff. And she's like, I read both sides, but then I'm left one, I'll read the entire article. And I'm like, okay, but what's actually going on? Like, what's the truth here? Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's the whole point. (laughs) Um, The truth thing is one of the biggest things that I like them to really focus on. But also, don't lose your um, your empathy, you know. And because having passion and being an actual human and letting yourself feel these emotions and understand humanity at its core is one of the most important things to journalism that people typically write off. Um, you, the whole objectivity and non-bias arguments in reporting are bullshit. (laughs) Um, You can report the truth and not... There's... I If I start on this, I'll I'll go off for days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hate the whole idea that you can't have an opinion behind the scenes and still not do accurate reporting. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, because you see all this stuff, you can't help but form an opinion on it. Yeah. And the the opinions sometimes are what produces um, your drive to find the, the, the truth. And I think it's an insult when people, you know, I have been, when people read my work, they assume that I am incredibly critical of the police. And I report that I say, no, I am just reporting the truth here. <laughs> Um, it should not matter if I am pro-police or anti-police or anything in between. Um, I'm reporting the truth here. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like the stats and data don't back up everything regarding how the police treat people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and homeless folks. I mean, we saw how Scott Wall reacted this morning um, to a certain article of Voice of San Diego today. <laughs> Um, and that's the one about them clearing the camps before the before the count, which you know, they, we, in activist circles, people know, right? But then the, when a media outlet reports it, of course, like, oh my yeah. gosh, unbiased, biased news yeah. source. Yeah, um, that's and, wild. Yeah, and let's be real, we all we all know why they're doing it. Oh yeah. Um, but I I posted on Twitter today. I was like, because I, I saw Scott Wall's statement before I read the Voice of San Diego article. And I was like, okay, Scott Wall's mad about something. Let's go see what's going on. (laughs) Uh, My old buddy. (laughs) Um, But it's just a big thing I also talk about is relying on the support group around you because taking on some of this stuff alone will kill you. (laughs) 
um, relying on your friends and the people who work with you and who are just as driven and passionate as you are is such a big um, part of it. And um, I finally took my own advice, but I always tell them to be mindful of trauma and if you have PTSD, to go to therapy. Um, So I finally took my own advice on that one. (laughs) um, uh, That's... My again, my biggest thing is just really telling journalists, young journalists, to focus on what is the truth and to not let the or the main organizations trick you into thinking that this doesn't involve humanity and emotions and heart because that's what this is. Yes. You know, being a legitimate ethical journalist, it um if you don't have heart, you don't have shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and we've all probably seen that this yeah. argument of like, you know, letting your not even like, you know, your positions like, you know, but letting facts present themselves in your articles is not like, you know, being biased. It's being mm-hmm. a good reporter. Right. Because inherently, like as someone who's been misquoted and just like never, never when I do a TV interview or anything like that, just like the part about like imperialism or anything ever make the like cut. It's always the like Trump bad, if, if anything, you know, or it's like the like angry brown people did this today. Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying is that inherently there's an agenda behind all this reporting, right? Whether that's to under or over-report certain elements or to, like, completely take something out of context with police brutality and stuff like that. So thank you, Katie, yeah. for at least acknowledging and doing that work, which is, like, acknowledging the material reality, not this ideal, idealized version of, like, in a perfect world, everyone would be objective and, and we would also, like, give each other, you know, flowers and be nice to each other, of course. But unfortunately the reality is that, like, these... Other media outlets are routinely sanitizing and and mm-hmm. and, and altering how they p- produce what they produce, uh, you know, as a way of like adding their own opinion. So thank you for acknowledging yeah. that. I appreciate it. It's refreshing. <laughs> gotcha. well, as, as I like to say, the truth needs no modesty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess like now that takes us to like what the immediate future or just the near future holds for you, Katie. Like, I mean, you just came off this really intense thing. What do you see going on in your future? I mean, are you going to keep, you know, raging against the machine? Like, which I fully support. Anyone who knows me knows that I support raging against the machine. Um, but what is, what's going on with you? What do you got going on? Oh, boy. Um, so, <laughs> um, I am trying to graduate out of community college. Um Right now, I'm, I have, like, six more months left of being editor-in-chief for The Sun. So I have taken a step back from the reporting a little bit temporarily. <laughs> uh, temporarily. <laughs> because I want... Because, okay, I, I love being in the trenches. I love going through all of the, like, all of the stories. It's... It, I love it. It's addicting. It's a whole thing. But I want my students to be able to experience that. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to not take stories that I just am biting, like I'm chomping at the bit at, and I'm like, <laughs> no, my students, please, please take these stories. Like, <laughs> You will have so much fun, and it'll suck the life out of you, and it'll be great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to take a step back from reporting right now because I want them to have the opportunities that I had. Okay. Um, because I, I'll still do like one or two stories every now and then, but I really want them to get these experiences while they can. Because I know I'm, I'm going to make a career out of this. This is where I'm going to be spending the rest of my life. Um, I know I want to be a reporter. 
and I know that I want to do work revolving around um, the justice system and mass incarceration and police brutality and police accountability and all the things that you know I've I'm kind of known for now. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. But I want to take a time. I want to take the time to strengthen them for these next few months in the way that I was. You know. Um, but after that, <laughs> uh, once I kind of end my term at the Sun, I am going to finally graduate. <laughs> um, I'm looking at colleges right now, and I'm debating because I'm gonna move. I'm gonna live in San Diego regardless. Mm-hmm. But I'm debating like, do I want to go out of state for college? Do I want to stay here and just keep doing what I'm doing? Um, Five-year plan, I'm going to graduate with a degree <laughs> and then come back to San Diego and get back into the trenches nice. um, where I've been for a while now um, because I, this is, like I said, this is something that I want to spend the rest of my life doing. I, I love it. And until, you know, until the system and America is not as um, bad as it is right now, I think we kind of need people who still give a shit about making some change. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Um, So, uh, excuse me, taking it one step at a time right now, but I'm just going to finish up schooling, get some more education under my boots, (laughs) and then keep doing what I'm doing here, keep holding the higher powers accountable. Yeah, and after what you just went through, (laughs) uh, going to school, graduating from community college, living a normal-ass human life, Totally worth it, like totally, you know, deserved and earned. Uh, and we trust me, the trenches, like as we all know, uh, us who basically have our, you know, twenty four seven homes in them, right, uh, aren't going anywhere. So it's good. It's good that you're doing that. I'm excited to hear that you're, you know, got some pretty cool, just regular ass folks stuff going on. We yeah. all need that. We need that. Um, uh, now, Katie, where can people uh, follow you uh, both online and offline? And where can they, uh, your work you do publish, where can they read and find all your latest reporting? Please don't follow me offline. I will get spooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, all, for the record, do not follow any of us offline. Uh, or we will assume you are a fan. <laughs> or at least I will assume you are a fan. Yeah, um, I definitely still get a little spooked about cops sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I also still think it was a coincidence that I started getting um, random parking tickets the day af- uh, less than a week after oh, art- yeah. controversial articles get printed. Um, <laughs> like last, just a quick story. Um, yeah. <laughs> like last week, um, I had I received a parking ticket at Southwestern, and I looked at the name of the officer who had given me the ticket, and it was someone. It was an officer on campus that I had gotten in an argument with a couple of months ago defending one of my writer's stories about him. (laughs) And he was saying that it was inaccurate, and I happened to be the person there who saw what he had done, and I was like, no, it's it's accurate because I saw you do it. (laughs) (laughs) And a month later, I get a parking ticket. And this is not the first time, and I doubt it's going to be the last time. Um, So please don't follow me offline. (laughs) 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 Um, Online, though, I, um, I'm bad about sharing my stories and I need to get better about doing it, but you can follow me on Twitter at kstegel33 and you can follow me on Instagram at kt, uh, like the letters k and t underscore teller 
and then I usually don't accept people on Facebook that I don't know, and I don't have a public page yet. Um, but Twitter is a good place to always find me. Um, I'm trying to get better about my Twitter game because that's where journalists just like thrive. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the hot fire is happening, as the youth would say, right? Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> it's where all the hot gosses. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys for having me. <laughs> of course. Uh, are there any closing comments or anything else you'd like to let our listeners know before we leave? Um. Well, okay, I don't know how to do this without it sounding low-key like one of those, like, Oscar speeches. <laughs> um, uh, but I'd just like to thank everybody that has been in my life in the last year. Um, you know, from Max and David. Um, David is our temporary advisor right now with The Sun because Max is um, out with cancer, but he's recovering. <laughs> um, but... Max and David and Brooke for mentoring me and for every single person, you know, Aranza and Victoria and Siobhan who, you know, went through that Jefferson story right along with me. And, um, you know, I just, I could not have gotten through this year without the support system that I had in my life. And, um, you know... Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, Katie, you're an amazing journalist and Thank an you. absolutely <laughs> wonderful human being. We look forward to seeing you accomplish great things in the future, and we hope that someday you'll be able to join us once again here on the show. Thank you for coming through. Thank yes. you so much. <laughs> I, I look forward to seeing and talking to more awesome uh, Southwest Sun uh, student reporters that come to events and be like, oh, I, uh, and, and, and always have good questions. So, yes, thank you, Katie, for everything. Thank you. <laughs> And we out. Yeah. <laughs> Victory is ours. This episode of Step Off Radio is recorded at the Justice Center, San Diego. And our music was done by DJ Root. This has been a Step Off Magazine production.